Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Marty Walsh, who is the Executive Director of the Hand Therapy Certification Commission. He answers all of our questions about the Certified Hand Therapist exam and gives some great insight as to how the questions are developed and how HTCC ensures that the designation of CHT maintains its high level of respect. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Marty. So we have Marty with us this evening, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about HTCC. Marty, can you give us an introduction of yourself, say who you are, kind of how you ended up in HTCC, if you're practicing, what you're doing? Just give us a little bit of a background. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. My name is Marty Walsh, and I am the Executive Director of HTCC. I have been an OT for oof, almost 40 years, and I became a CHT in 1992, which was, I think, the second year that they offered the exam. Most of my career, I worked at a level one trauma center in San Francisco with a group of microsurgeons. I became involved with HTCC in the late 90s, and I became an item writer and then was selected to be on the examination committee and a couple of other committees with HTCC. I started working for HTCC just part-time, a couple days a week, early 2000s, for the then executive director, Mary Cash. Then, unfortunately, Mary Cash passed away in 2012, and it was really a blow to, I mean, the whole hand therapy community, but especially HTCC. She was, you know, a founding member of ASHT, she was a founding member of the credential, and she was just a, a dear friend and mentor. So we were just all in a state of not knowing what to do. So the board of directors asked me if I would be the interim director for until you know we figured out how to move forward. And I remember telling them that I'd be glad to do it in a temporary basis, but for them not to make me do it forever. I didn't really want to do it because I was enjoying my clinical work and doing the administrative stuff. Well. Funny thing happened, I ended up enjoying the work. I ended up feeling that it was really meaningful. The board seemed to like what I was doing, and they asked me to present a proposal, which I did, and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> so I've been in this role for 10 years, and I do it full-time. So can you give us just, I guess, a maybe an intro of how HTCC came to be and how the exam came to be, how we are kind of where we're at now? Yeah, back in the 80s, to be a member of ASHT, you had to be sponsored by a, a member. You had to submit a portfolio with a case study and some other requirements. It was all fairly subjective, but around in the 70s and 80s, antitrust laws were coming out and they were, and I don't know exactly all about it, but you couldn't do that anymore. You couldn't restrict membership based on those kind of qualifications. So a subcommittee of ASHT was formed to explore the possibility of creating an examination so that there would be, you know, an objective means of getting a credential. Even back in the 80s, um, people who were members of ASHT would put, you know, OTRL 
A-S-H-T after their name. So they're kind of using as a credential kind of incorrectly. So the first exam was administered in 1991. But before all that, they had to hire a testing organization. They had to do a, a job analysis, a practice analysis of, of, of practice. They had to come up with questions. So it was a really a long process. And then they finally were, had the first exam in 1991. And that was 30 years ago, 31 years ago. Who'd have thought? <laughs> you know, I remember I just started practicing actually as an assistant in 92. So I remember way back then hearing about it and it just getting started. How has it transitioned over the years from that first test to now? You know, how has it evolved? How as far as requirements to take the test. I know you just said, you mentioned there was portfolios and everything that was needed. How did you decide decide what the requirements are? Yeah, all the decisions that we make for HTCC and for the exam and all policies go back to our practice analyses. And we do these every five to seven years. We survey all CHTs. We have a, usually a very good response rate, but we ask people, um, you know, the frequency they do different you know, techniques and tools or diagnosis they see. So we just really, we really kind of map out practice. And what some of the questions on there are when do people have the knowledge or the skills to be a hand therapist? Those are, those are some of the early questions. So everything we do, every decision we make is really falls back on the practice analysis. And like I said, we do those every five to seven years. So I think in the very beginning, there was the requirements where you had to be an OT or a PT, you had to be a therapist for five years, and you had to see only 2,000 hours of direct practice in hand therapy. So in 2002, that changed. So it was still five years as a therapist, but they increased it to 4,000 hours. And then as you know, in 2017, again, based on the results of that practice analysis, we were finding that people were kind of graduating with more advanced degrees. They were, you know, when I graduated, I just had a bachelor's degree. I was 22 years old. You know, people were graduating with degrees in their mid to late 20s. And we were finding that we felt like, and the practice analysis really showed that, we were losing a lot of therapists. They weren't wanting to wait after all that school another five years. So, you know, it always surprised me at how controversial that decision was you know, that people really took it the wrong way, like we were watering down the profession. But in my opinion, that's not the case at all, because we really still kept that 4,000 hour requirement. And if somebody graduates from school, starts in a hand therapy clinic right away, I mean, in three years, they're ready. So that changed in 2017. And, and we actually have seen our numbers increase a bit since then, which is a good thing, because that first group in 1991 was by far our largest group ever. And that was, you know, 30 years ago, they're starting to retire. So we were really concerned that we were going to have a shortage of CHTs. And by having that, that policy change, it's kind of even things out a little bit. So that's kind of how the credentials changed throughout the years. So can we talk, I know everybody probably bombards you with questions of, what's the test like or what's on the test? And I don't want to go there, but let's talk a little bit about the exam and how, I know you mentioned that you were an item writer. So who are the people developing this test and how do they, how do they do that? It's a really long process. I remember Jerry Coverdale 
when he was president, came to one of our meetings or, and, you know, I don't know if you remember that, that school rock song, I'm just a Bill's, only a Bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Well, it takes a long time for an idea to become in our item bank. So we have a call for item writers periodically. It used to be every couple of years, but as we were, we were finding out that we were just, there's just too many questions being generated, we weren't able to get them into the examination. But there's a call for item writers. We then have a training with our testing company who trains them on how to write a correct question and, you know, how to, to validate the item, whether is it, it um, you know, there's three validation skills I need to write the questions for, you know, at what level of mastery should you know this, this knowledge? If you don't know this knowledge, would it cause harm to somebody and how important is this knowledge? So it's kind of has to pass those three validation skills to move on. But anyway, so an item writer is paired with a mentor, a more experienced item writer, and they go back and forth writing an item to submit. Once it's submitted, it goes through that validation process I just talked about. And then it goes to the exam committee and the exam committee may take that item and completely change it from there. In fact, tomorrow I'm flying to Chicago and we have a group of item writers that we're training for an item writer workshop. So we're, we're really excited about it. It's really fun to do that. And we decided this time around to, to recruit people who recently passed the test. So we sent out invitations for the people who took the exam the past three years. So it'll be, it'll be really interesting. And the way we pick the item writers is, you know, they have to fill out an application. They have to write some sample questions, but we also look at what we need in the item bank. So somebody is, you know, if we have a, if we're missing, if we need to beef up, say the shoulder sections or, or other, other topic areas, then we'll, we'll tap people with those experiences to be item writers for the, for the exam. So then once the item goes through the exam committee and it's finally accepted to be on the item bank, then we will actually use it on the exam. We use about 30 to 40 new items per exam and we do score them, but we also look at how it's performing. We have a psychometrician who's a testing consultant and he's a, a psychologist that's specialized in statistics. So he looks at the statistics and he can see whether, for instance, if the item is performing Poorly are the people who are scoring really low on the exam picking the correct answer, but the people who are scoring really well on the exam picking the, the incorrect answer consistently. So we'll take a closer look at that to see why that might be happening and see if there's a flaw in, in the answer. So once that goes through that process, it's scored and it's, it's, on, it's in the bank indefinitely. Do you have any questions? I mean, it's a pretty complicated process. And, you know, from beginning to end, you know, it may take a couple of years for one question to get on the bank and then to get tested and to be analyzed statistically. So you mentioned that about 30 to 40 new questions get added. What is the process for recognizing if any of those questions are outdated or if there's new evidence that might suggest something different or might change that question? How, how does a question get removed from the bank? Right. So every time we do a practice analysis, usually the blueprint of the exam changes. So then the whole item bank needs to be reclassified and, and put into different categories and so forth. And based on the practice analysis, there'll be some topic areas that we, that we no longer, that the practice analysis has determined, that CHTs have determined that we no longer are using or should be testing. For instance, string wrapping, you know, that used to be a question on the exam. And um, manual demobilization was kind of this new thing that was coming out. And then we found through the practice analysis that people were really using that a lot. So, so we got rid of all our string wrapping questions and we kind of 
kind of focus more on, on the more current, current ways to manage edema. I think on the last practice analysis, we found that people weren't using biofeedback as much anymore or CPMs machines much anymore, like less than monthly. So we won't be testing that moving forward, most likely. So th- that's how, how we go about the process. But the exam, the item bank in the exam is looked at constantly. Every time a new reference is published, we have to re- re-reference the items that, that's attached to that. So we need to make sure that an item has a current reference that that shows it's still standard in practice. And then when we put together the exam, we do what's called a form review and the entire exam committee goes through question by question on whatever form we're going to be testing to make sure that the items on there are current and and what people are are doing. That's an intense process. Yeah. (laughs) I think most of us that think, oh, I'm just, I'm going to take a test like any other standardized test I've taken throughout all of my schooling. And it's a, a much bigger process to ensure that the test is, is asking what you want it to and, and gathering that. And I think that brings me to a kind of another idea is that, you know, we often get asked the question, why can't I get my results right away? You know, why do I have to wait three weeks or so? Well, after the exam window closes, we can't start scoring the exam until it closes. And the reason for that is that our psychometrician will flag every single item that has questionable statistics. And we allow candidates to make comments on questions, not to defend their answer, but to point out flaws that they think. They may say like, well, geez, I think A and B both could be correct. And the exam committee will look at every single one of those comments and every single one of those flagged items from the from our psychometrician. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, but from time to time, items will be doubled or triple keyed. We'll see that they had a valid point. We don't know how we missed that, but we'll give them credit for, say, two correct answers. So it's really to the candidate's benefit that they wait so that we can make sure the process is as fair as possible. Do you have many comments made each year? I guess I shouldn't say year. Testing cycle. (laughs) Yes, we have lots of comments. Some people almost want to comment on every single question. Oh my goodness. Others are not quite so, I mean, I I don't know where you'd have the time to do it, but. Yeah, yeah. because that's included in your testing time, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to finish the test and then give them my opinion about every single (laughs) question. Right, right. And we'll get questions like, well, geez, everybody should know that, you know, it's like, oh, those, kind of, <laughs> those kind of comments are not real helpful for us, right? <laughs> but they do make us chuckle. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> so I know you had mentioned you decreased the experience level from five years to three years. Have you changed or have you seen the number of test takers increase That's my first question. And then the percentage rate of pass-fail, has that changed with the decrease in experience? Has that increased or decreased? I pulled those numbers for you today. (laughs) (laughs) So to answer your first question, yes, our numbers, the amount of candidates we have sitting for the exam since we made that change in 2017 has increased. In fact, our November or last year, the spring and the fall exam, we had 687 people 
sit for the exam. That's the most we've had since 2002. And coincidentally, that was a year right before they changed from 2000 to 4,000 hours. So it was a really big year last year. But since 2017, we've been well into the 500, 550, you know, upper 500s, when, whereas before we were, you know, if we hit 400, we were doing pretty good. So it has increased quite a bit, the amount of people that are sitting for the exam, except for 2020, understandably, we had to cancel one of the exams. But in, to answer your second question, the pass rates have not changed. The pass rates remain as high as they always were. The first time test takers and the people that are in that three to five year time frame, they all are scoring the best on the exam. There are high scorers. So the first time test takers pass at about 68 to 70%, whereas the, the repeat test takers pass at like a 38 to 40% pass rate. And then the overall passing rate over the past 10 years is between, between 57 and 68%, with the average being about 59%. So to answer your question, we have not seen a change in the statistics at all. And we've been keeping a really close eye on that to make sure that that doesn't change. That's interesting, seeing that the highest scores are between three and five years of experience. It's interesting just knowing that they have more of learning this, the information from the books and not having an extreme amount of clinical experience, but still going by the material that's written. Right. But they still have to have that 4,000 hours. So my guess is that these people have real hand therapy experience. You know, they're seeing a variety of diagnoses because frankly, our test isn't one that you could pass very easily just by studying. You have to have the clinical background. Sure. So you just mentioned that you had to cancel. I'm sure we all know why in 2020. How has the exam process or I guess overall start to finish process changed in response to the pandemic? And once you were able to give that exam again? Yeah. So you know, that was a hard time for everybody. It was a really hard decision for us to make to cancel. But what was happening was that our test centers, that our test company sponsors were closing down and we just weren't going to be able to schedule people to take the exam. And then rather than just postpone it for a month or two, because we didn't know what was going to happen in a month or two, we decided just to cancel it altogether, which ended up being a good idea because where we had would have postponed it was right about when the Olympics was happening and the Olympics were postponed. So, you know, it was just, it was a good decision. But what we did for that November exam or that fall exam that year in 2020 is we opened up our test centers because we don't have as many test centers, say, in Australia. And it would be really helpful for people who live in rural areas where they have to travel far away to take the exam. But like I said, that has not happened to this point and it remains to be seen whether it will. Do you know off the top of your head how many international test takers there are each year or? No. Um, That's fine. (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to think if if I, I mean, I have that number somewhere. I report on it every year. Um, I figured you did. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's probably, it's not a lot, you know, probably 15 or maybe 20 outside of North America, maybe 10 or 15 every year from Australia. Australia is after Canada, Australia is our largest population of of exam candidates. The European Union, they have their own credential. We do have several therapists from Qatar, believe it or not. I think that we have five or six therapists from Qatar. And every year we have a couple more that take the exam from there. 
So there are over 7,000 CHTs worldwide, and that number goes up every year a little bit. And there's about, I would say, 65 to 6,600 in the U.S. So the majority of them are in our country. So you said there's about 7,000. So do you lose any CHTs every year, like people that do not recertify or clinicians that retire? Do you know those statistics? Yeah, so that was a concern of ours, you know, that that we weren't getting enough new CHTs come in to replace the CHTs we're leaving. Our recertification rate generally is about 90%, which for credentialing organizations is unheard of. So we do have a, a really high retention rate. Last year was the 1991 group that had to recertify that first year. So we were really a little anxious to see what was going to happen because a lot of them were retiring and our recertification rate dropped to 8% that year. So, but we've been looking closely at, you know, the people we leave, the people that are coming in, and it seems to be balancing itself. And if, if not, we go up a little bit every year. So that's good. So how, as an organization, even speaking to those, the recertification, how do you ensure that designation that we hold as a CHT maintains that high level of respect in the community to our referring providers? And then as well, just making sure that therapists recognize and kind of promote themselves with that designation. Yeah, I think that's the bottom line. I think HTCC does its part by maintaining our reputation, by not lowering our standards, by its common knowledge amongst our community and, and, and surgeons that we have a very rigorous program, a very difficult exam and high standards. And I really believe this is that, you know, we maintain a high standards, but our therapists are kind of superstars. I mean, we, we're a very talented group of people. And I think we're the ones that show our patients, we show the pairs, we show the surgeons our worth, you know, so... So I know we mentioned that you are the executive director. You did give us a little bit of how you became the executive director. So what all does your job include as the executive director? Well, I wear many hats and I juggle a lot of things. We are a very small, we have a very small staff. It's myself and Lisa Khan, who's our administrative manager. And it's pretty much just the two of us. So I I oversee the day-to-day operations of the organization of the, of the corporation, you know, and just what all that entails, budgeting and the fiscal and finances and paying the bills and all of that. But also we contract out a lot of, a lot of our services. So we contract out to graphic designers, to website developers, to people who manage our database, to our attorneys, to our testing company, to our investors, you know, all of those people I need to be in contact with on a regular basis to to coordinate the day-to-day happenings of HTCC. And then I have to be there to support our board of directors, to communicate and collaborate with our exam committee, our recertification committee. We even have a disciplinary review committee. So if, if there's a disciplinary action against a therapist, our attorney and the disciplinary review committee have to review that. So there's just a, a lot involved in the job. And it's just depending on what time of year, like now we're really focused on the exam. As soon as the exam is over, we're going to be focusing on, you know, getting the results out and having meetings, arranging meetings with, you know, the exam committee to, you know, to look at those, those comments that I mentioned before and so forth. So there's just a lot going on and it's a really rewarding job because it's always changing. 
I do travel a bit. So I try to go to most of our big meetings. So I go to ASHT, the Philadelphia meeting. I just got back from hand care. We go to CMS. We go to AOTA. So we go to all these meetings. We have booths there so that people come and ask questions and, and we just put ourselves out there. I think that AOTA meeting is a really good one that we go to because, you know, I'm going on a tangent here a little bit, but in that meeting, we mainly just see students that come to our booth. So we're kind of planting the seed for the students to show them that, that there is a specialty credential out there. And some of them, they'll come to the booth and they're excited. They know what they want to do. They already have their field ship or their level two field ship arranged in a hand clinic. And you know that they're going to hit the ground running. Those are the ones that are going to be taking the test in three years. You could just tell. And then at APTA, the combined section meeting, a lot of PTs don't know that this is a specialty credential for them. And a lot of physical therapists will come up and say, well, I didn't know that was something for us. I thought that was just for OT. So, so it's just kind of dispelling some of those myths that are out there too. Interesting. I wonder if as a PT, I know all of the APTA credential or I guess certified credentials, I don't know the right term, the OCS, the PCS, the SCS, some of those specialties, maybe the PTs think, oh, well, there's not a hand one under that umbrella and don't realize it's its own entity. And maybe as, as a fellow, as a PT, CHT, I should probably do a better job of advertising that. <laughs> right. Well, the PT oh, Hand Academy, I, I noticed that you, yes, absolutely. it's actually Jane yes. who, who got us going. She actually generously lets us share her booth, the Hand Academy nice. booth. So we're in there with them and we're, we're just in trying to encourage, you know, the PTs that, that we're out there if, if, you know, if it's something that they're interested in pursuing. So, and it's amazing. A lot of them don't, don't realize that, that there's a credential for PTs that, that it's also all, available for PTs as well. So, mm-hmm. Marty, can you speak to HTCC's role in the Tri-Alliance and where you fit in there? Yes, we're fully dedicated to the Tri-Alliance of the, you know, the, the Tri-Alliance you're referring to as of ASHT, the American Hand Therapy Foundation and HTCC. We actually donate money to the foundation for the Founders Grant every year. And I think ASHT does as well. We meet Semi-regularly, we meet as a group every year at the ASHT meeting and then throughout the year as well. And I think we all three organizations, even though we're separate, we, we have a common goal. And I think we work well together. We have separate responsibilities, but I think we collaborate really well. I have a wonderful relationship with, with the executive director at ASHT, Jean. I know that the foundation just got a new executive director. I have not met her yet. But I do communicate with Jim King quite a bit as well. So, and like I said before, we have separate roles. I mean, we do credentialing. We set the standard. We develop the scope of practice through a practice analysis. And we decided that we didn't want to have sample tests or to have education. Other testing companies do that. Like I think NBCOT has exam prep you know, materials and so forth. But we decided that we we didn't want to teach for the exam. So ASHT does a wonderful job at that. You know, you all have, you know, great exam prep materials and courses. And so I think we just all three have our distinct roles. And I think we work all really well together. I'm really proud of our tri-alliance. Yeah. <laughs> so for those listeners who are interested in taking the exam in 2020, 20- 
22. Can you give us some like deadlines that people have to apply for the exam in and get scheduled during that three week time frame? Yes. So the application for the we used to call it the May and the November exam, but since it, it's a longer window, the May goes into April and the November goes into October a little bit. So it's the fall <laughs> and the spring exam. So for the fall exam, the application will open sometime in July, usually mid-July, and it closes on October 15th. So they have to get all the materials in by then. They go to our website, they create an account in our certification center, fill out the application, and then they send us an employment verification form signed by their employer, which shows that they have the 4,000 hours direct practice experience. Then they submit a form that they sign explaining to us what setting they work in, how they calculated the hours and so forth. And then they show us proof of five years, or excuse me, three years, and they send us a current state license. And then if all those look in order, then they're deemed eligible. We send their file to our testing company, PSI, and they're able to schedule their exam. Great. So all of you that are interested, deadline's coming up in about, what, three months, three to four well, months? That's the deadline. The, the application opens. The I mean, application. Opens. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's opening. Opening. Right. It's open. Yeah. The application's open. That's right. Yeah. That's and right. for, you know, we're in the middle of the testing window right now. Um, mm-hmm. We opened it on Monday. So this is day three. And so I just want to wish everyone who is taking the exam or has taken it this week, my best wishes for a successful mm-hmm. exam result. We really want you to become CHTs if, you know, if you meet the qualifications. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, great. Well, thank you, Marty, for joining us. We really appreciate it. I think our listeners will enjoy the conversation, definitely. I hope so. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the exam. And, and it's nice to see that, it's, that you know, the item writing process and the exam is scientific. You know, it's, mm-hmm. we follow the industry standards. In fact, yeah. I, I should bring that up is as therapists, we're a member of the American Society of Hand Therapists, but as a credentialing organization, we're a member of the Institute for Credentialing Excellence. And they have an annual meeting just like HAT does. I'm a member of that organization. I go to their meeting every year and it could be credentialing agencies from emergency room nurses to crane operators, but we follow their guidelines and the industry standards and that's something that we're very involved in as well. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Podcast.